And on that note, we open God's Word. <laughs> Hi, I'm Mike. It's good to be with you today. In a few minutes, we're going to open up to Matthew chapter 6, page 1476 in your few Bibles. I hope you're here last week when Lloyd talked about fasting and prayer. We had a wonderful time. Just under 400 people were here um, Wednesday night for a great time of prayer and, and worship. And then we ate. And there's a day of fasting, and it was very good. It's very good. Tim Hawkins does a skit on prayer, and we're in this, this uh, series on prayer this month. And he starts out with a prayer that we all probably are familiar with. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord in my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Good night, Johnny. <laughs> and thus is our education of prayer. Here we go from there. John Wooden, who was the famed basketball coach at UCLA for decades, his players would come in and they'd be all excited, sit on the bench and hear John Wooden's motivational speech have a great season, another national champion, and he would say, take off your shoes and socks. Not what they were expecting, but maybe they thought they were going to get some new shoes or something. So they take off their shoes and socks, and he says, okay, now put your socks back on. Okay, and they put their socks on, and say, snug them up, put your shoes on. Now start at the bottom and lace them up tight. So they do that, and he would say, here's the deal. Putting your shoes and socks on are the first part of playing basketball. Because if your shoes aren't tight and your socks are loose, you're going to get a blister. If you get a blister, you can't practice. If you can't practice, you can't play. If you can't play, you can't win. So put your, first you have to put on your shoes and socks. And prayer is often like that. But when now I lay me is our introduction to prayer, Sometimes we feel a little lost. In the last 39 years of ministry, 38 years as being a pastor, as I listen to my own prayers and I listen to prayers around me, I find that sometimes we get a little lost. And Jesus in Matthew 6 gave us a, a remedy for that. And we're going to walk through what's known as the Lord's Prayer today, line by line, and find out that each line has a very important principle in how Jesus wants us to approach and instructed us to approach the throne of God so that our prayers aren't bouncing off the ceiling, as it were. Have you ever felt like that? It's like, you know, yeah. So you get up and you just live your day however you're going to live it anyway. And it's important for each of us to examine your present prayer life. There's a book I try to read every January, Ortberg's. It's a rewrite of a disciplines book. It's called The Life You've Always Wanted. It talks about 16 different disciplines of the Christian life, and prayer is one of those. And January is just a great time to take a relook at, okay, how am I living this life? Is it working? What am I doing to engage God in the way that he would want me to engage him? And, and I find that often... I've let things slide a little bit. I've gotten comfortable with God. Maybe a little too much. 
And so in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, it's a passage we call the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is talking about what the kingdom of God will be like with him at the helm as Lord, as King. And the first thing we realize after getting just a few verses in is, I can't do this. And so we summarize it and we write poetry about it and we put it on the wall as something we should attain to instead of actually realize this is something that Jesus wants us to do, but can only be accomplished in his presence, can only be accomplished by his power, can only be accomplished in the way that he set it out for us to live. Now, being people, we're like, eh, I got this. And so he's patient until we realize we don't have this. And so we go back to what he originally said to do, and then we begin to find that the Christian life actually can work because of the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in our lives in the presence of Jesus Christ. So in Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13, we find the Lord's Prayer. In John 14, Jesus said the Holy Spirit's going to come and he's going to guide you into all truth. So we could bow our heads, please. Fathers, we open up truth, your word, the Bible. Just ask that you would guide us, that you would bring to my memory and to our hearts what you have for us today as we look at this incredible passage about prayer. And that we would look at it, but also look at how we presently pray and realize that there probably is room for improvement and that how Jesus taught really is the best way because of the things we'll discover in the prayer. And while, Father, I know that this isn't new to many of us, we still begin to slide and we let priority become secondary in light of what we think brings pleasure. So let this morning be a guide a standard once again to how you want us to come into your throne room, how you want us to come to you so that our prayers are effective and your presence is known in a great way. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you read this with me, starting with our Father? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So right off the bat, we have a tension. Go back to that. Our Father in heaven. Now, our Father, the word Father is the same word that Jesus used in the Garden of Gethsemane in Mark 14. And... There he's in a desperate situation, and he, the word would translate into our vernacular, daddy. Now, when kids come to their parents, you can often tell what's happening by how you're addressed. Dad, need a 20. Dad, want this. Mom, when it's daddy, there's something different happening. Daddy speaks of an innocence, it speaks of a need, and there's something that unlocks in a father's heart when he's called daddy. There's an intimacy. And Jesus here uses that word, Abba, daddy. And that creates a tension then against where he's at. He's in heaven. 
what's heaven like? How's heaven treat his name? And it's to be read like your name is to be treated as it is in heaven. So our father or daddy, in the midst of all your glory, in the midst of all your splendor, in the midst of being the creator of the universe, in the midst of being the one who is to be worshiped and praised, I come to you. And that creates a tension that's a little bit difficult to transition. When I was in high school, well, I grew up in the church and uh, gave my life to Christ at five the first time. And I say the first time because as you learn more, you give more and you receive more. And as a sophomore, it just seemed like we took the name of God very for granted. And prayers were just kind of like offered up. No thought to who we were really praying to sometimes. Because after all, he's my best friend, right? Always with me, always knows. There was a place in Seattle called St. Mark's Cathedral. It was built, started before World War II and finished after World War II. And you walked in and the place was ginormous. It sat about 3,000 people. And it was all cement, cement floors, four columns spaced around the middle, 20 feet thick of cement, 40 feet tall. This expanse. And they had a service called the Compline Service, and it was the last service of the day, the seventh service. And so I began to go over there, and you walked into this place, and you didn't talk. There was no noise. It was silent. It was reverent. I remembered being a little boy with my grandpa hiking up in the Darrington Mountains in northwest uh, Washington. And we would come to this overview, and it'd just be incredible. And Papa always stopped and worshipped. He loved to worship. And I began to put together this awesomeness of creation with his worship and began to watch him. And I think that's part of what was resonating in me as a high school kid. And I'd go over there, and these, at 9 o'clock, these 12 to 16 guys would come out and in hooded robes and they would stop in front of the altar then they'd go to their position on the side and they would begin to sing in Gregorian chant Latin and their parts and harmonies would fill the space and it was amazing but then in the middle they always sang a hymn and I always loved it when they sang great is thy faithfulness or a mighty fortress is our king and these these hymns that were providential and spoke of the majesty of God and it would just fill up and your heart would just but at the same time, you felt small because you were in the midst of glory. You were in the midst of a king, and when you were sitting there with relationship with him, it took on a different meaning than, well, he's my friend. And I loved going over there and sitting quiet, which I don't do very well, and sat quiet for that 30 minutes and just reflect on his goodness and his power and his majesty and his being. I began to tell some of my friends about it in my last half of my junior year and senior year, there'd be five or six cars of us that would go over full of kids and we'd go in and be quiet. Because we were never quiet in church. And we'd be quiet. And we would sit in the holiness of God. And it was an amazing experience as a kid 
and it set a, a tone for me. So I began to understand the majesty of God. In scripture, probably the best place to understand this is back in a book of Isaiah. Isaiah is, was a prophet. Israel was going through its highs and lows, and it's at a low. They want to do what they want to do. They're lost, so now they're calling out to God. And so Isaiah is God's plan for the children of Israel for salvation. But Isaiah experiences that along the way as an illustration of what he's preaching. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, in a vision I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim, heavenly beings. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, two he covered his feet, and two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And in that setting, Isaiah's response is as our response should be when we realize we are in the midst of a holy God. And he says, woe is me. Now, that's not a phrase that meant, this isn't good. This meant, woe is me. And he goes on and he says, I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Jesus says in the first line of the Lord's Prayer, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And Isaiah comes in front of this incredible, holy, majestic God. And the only possible posture he can take is one of humility. And in that humbleness and humility, he says, woe am I. Because God's holiness always shines on our sin. And there's a contrast. There's a woman in my, woman in my office a few weeks ago, and we were talking about what Jesus did and how we can step into his family and into relationship with him. And after about 30 minutes of conversation, she began to weep and she said, I feel dirty inside. I feel heavy. What is that? And she said a very interesting thing. She said, is this your God? I said, yes, but it's also your God. And what you're feeling is in response to talking about who God is, and you're feeling the weight of your sin against him. And she said, I don't like it. I said, I imagine you don't. It's uncomfortable. She said, how do I get rid of it? I said, by acknowledging it and acknowledging God. And what he wants to do is exchange all of that junk and condemnation for freedom and peace and love and forgiveness. How do I do that? We can pray. I've never prayed. 
in my life. I can help you. Will you? Yes. And as I began to lead her in a prayer, I'm watching her face. She has her eyes closed, and she's very somber, still crying, repeating words after me. And about halfway through, her face began to change. And by the time I said amen, she's got a smile on her face. And I said, what are you feeling? And she just said, I feel hope. I said, good. That's what you should feel. We're in the presence of God, clean. And she was just like, wow. I saw her last week, and I said, how are you doing? She goes, good. I don't understand everything, but good. I said, good. That's the way it should be right now. We've got somebody working with her. And, but when we come into the holiness of God, there's a reflection. Uh, Richard Loveless said in spiritual, Dynamics of Spiritual Life, he said, knowledge of God and knowledge of self are preconditions of spiritual life because revival involves awakening. If I want to be revived in God, the first step is one of recognizing his holiness and my unholiness, my sin. The fact that I can't do this but he can, and he wants to. Jonathan Edwards put it this way, every experience of God could be counterfeited except those which involve insight to God's holiness. We can come into church on Sunday and sit there and sing songs and listen to the message and go home and never really involve God. We can pray, we think and lift our voice and give him our laundry list of things we want and say amen and go on our day. And we've prayed, but we didn't really involve God because God wants involved in a unique way. He wants involved in such a way that he's lifted up as king, but also that we are invited in to his throne room for a specific purpose, and that's that our lives would be lived out then in such a way that glorified him, gave him credit. And sometimes we don't have the words for that. I know I don't always have the words for that, and so I use Scripture. What better way to bring what God wants to hear from us than what words that he gave us? So I use something like Psalms 145. There's a lot of Psalms that are nothing but songs to him about worship and praise, some things in Isaiah, great passages. You know, I will exalt you, fathers, my God and King. I will bless your name because you reign forever. Every day I wake up, I choose to bless you. I choose to praise your name forever and ever because you're great. You're greatly to be praised. There's nobody like you. Generations have commended your works to one another, and I choose to speak of your goodness to my generation and the generation that follows. Your glorious splendor, I'm going to talk about. I'm going to talk about the good things you've done. I'll remember those things. I'll meditate those things. I'll think about those things. And they'll speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I'll declare your greatness. And, and all of a sudden, I'm taking my words and following into the psalmist, and I'm realizing that I'm using a different set of vocabulary because I'm beginning to see a picture of God that's being painted that's so much larger than I came into that prayer with. And as God is magnified in my mind, I find something happens. 
And as I understand the Father as who he is in heaven, all of a sudden I understand my place. I understand that he is God and I am not. But I am positioned in him, in his holiness. And I've been invited in, into a place that I don't deserve to be. But because he is such a great God, he has allowed me into him. One night in Denver, I had flown in. Estel was already there. My brother was pastoring in Denver. And it was not a good season in my life. Um, some perspectives wrong. It just, it just wasn't a good season. And he wanted to get something out of his office. He said, right over with me. I said, okay. He said, besides that, we just got a new sound system. I want to show it. I want you to hear it. So in their church, went in, and there was this big cross there. Only that one was not quite as smooth. It was a big old rugged piece of lumber and hadn't been sanded or anything. It was kind of ugly. But so was the cross. And he flips a light on, and the spotlight just shines on this cross. And then we went up in the balcony where their offices were, and the church was on one side, and the church offices were on the other. And he goes in his office, and I just stopped. And he had gone to the sound booth and flipped on Phil Driscoll's uh, I Exalty. Phil Driscoll's a trumpet player. And it was just this amazing sound. And he cranked it up far more than we would ever do on a Sunday morning. Probably hit about 110 decibels, and it's just resonating. And I'm standing at the altar looking at this cross. And all of a sudden, I've never had it happen before, and I've never had it happen since. But as I'm standing at looking at the cross, it was as if the presence of God came in the left side and stopped right here. And I don't know how I got there, but I realized I was on the floor. And I was doing two things. I was crying, and I was worshiping. And that was all I could do. And after a minute or so, I realized I was safe. And I moved from fear to safety. And then he left. And my brother comes running out from his office. And he said, are you okay? Are you okay? Why are you on the floor? And I, he, I said, what? What happened to you? He goes, I heard you hit the floor. I had no idea I'd hit the floor loud enough to make a thump. He said, but I couldn't leave my chair. All I could do was worship. What happened? He said it was amazing. And that point in our lives became a benchmark. I experienced something when I needed to experience it that God was so far beyond my circumstance, and he wanted me to understand that. But in that place of need of him, I was also safe in his presence. In all of his majesty, I had a place of safety. In verse 10, Jesus goes on and he says, your kingdom come. Now, this follows because when we come into prayer and our first thoughts are our Father who art in heaven and all that goes with that, all the majesty, all the splendor, all the positioning, all the authority, why in the world would I want to tell God what I think he should do? But how many times do we find our prayers telling God what to do? 
as if he's not God. As if we have a list there, and if you'd only pay attention to our list, we'd have a good day. But Jesus says, no. Pray like this. Your kingdom come. Because when his kingdom comes, when his will is done, I am at my best place. Because I'm centered in what he has. I'm centered in who he is. I have identity. I have purpose. I have power. I have mission. And it all comes from him. He is God and I am not. And I'm recognizing that his will is the best place for me to possibly be. Mark 1.15, Jesus said, the time has come and the kingdom of God is at hand because he was standing there. Repent and believe in the gospel. And today we have the presence of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, who's present everywhere in each of us who are followers of Jesus, who carry the name Christian. He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Live in it. Enjoy it. Learn to live there. When we are declaring that his authority, which exists and rules in heaven, is desired here on earth and in our lives, something happens that's different. I'm not in charge, and I don't have to be. There are things going on so much greater than any one of us, any one of our networks that we don't understand. Sometimes we get a glimpse of it and we get to come alongside what God is doing. And we pray that we recognize that he's powerful, that he's doing something greater. And we say, I want that in my life. I want to be a part of what you're doing. And then the next line, Jesus says, give us our daily bread. He doesn't say, ask for everything and I'll give it to you. He says, pray in such a manner that you're praying for what you need. Father, give me today what you desire me to have. What a great and simple prayer. Give me what you want me to have, Father, and I'll be satisfied because your will is being done. Your plan is being accomplished. I don't need to hoard. I don't need to build a backup plan just in case you don't come through. No, you are God. You are king. I choose to say that. I choose to live in such a way that you are king in my life. I choose not to give you a shopping list, but instead I receive what you want me to have today. I choose to live in it, to steward it well. And then he says, ask for your sins to be forgiven. That's what the word debt here means. Forgive us our debts. Now the next phrase is not a what if to the first. Some people will say, well, as we forgive others, we'll be forgiven. No, if you want to be forgiven, all you have to do is acknowledge who God is and that he has the power to do so and ask him to and he will. It's not conditional on anything else. There's nothing you can do to earn forgiveness. It's a free gift from God, fully at his discretion. So what this means is forgive us 
Because in light of all you've forgiven us, we gladly choose to forgive those around us. We gladly choose to extend what you've given us to others. People who have wronged us. I wronged you and you forgave me, so I choose to forgive them. People that have slandered us. I spoke against your name, but you forgave me, and so I choose to forgive them. Forgive us our debts as we declare forgiveness to all because of your mercy towards us. Because of your great forgiveness, I can now choose to live in freedom and forgiveness. And he goes on, he says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Back in Genesis 3, when sin was dealt with and Adam and Eve were ushered out of the garden, Genesis 3, God pronounces curses because of sin. But he makes provision for Adam and Eve, and, and they have a difficult life now because of sin, but they have a life. And he says that there'll be pain, men will have to work, the earth will groan and grumble, and we live in that turmoil today. We live in that realization of the original sin. And the earth is growing old, and it does crazy things like hurricanes and volcanoes. And, and it's not something that God is doing. It's something that is a result of the brokenness that we live in. And in that brokenness, there's a ruler, Satan. This is his dominion. God broke into that with Jesus at the cross. And he separated and created a pathway so we could be rescued out of that. And we are now in the world, but not of it. If you're a Christian, you now have a unique setting of one who is in the kingdom of God, heaven bound, while we still live here. Because of what's around us, we can be tempted. John 15, 19 says, if you were in the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Not one of my favorite verses, but okay. But then he goes on over in Mark 14, 38. Watch and pray that you may not enter in temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So Jesus says, pray that you don't fall into the hands of the evil one. That's like, yeah, I hope not, but there's more to what he's talking about. Jim Semble, a pastor of Brooklyn Tabernacle, made this statement. God calls us to a life of prayer lived out in cooperation and partnership with God. I can't pray for peace in my life if at the same time I'm the one making all the noise. I can't pray for this and do this. I have to learn to live in the same vein as my prayers are. If I pray that I would love my wife, then I have to look and examine my behavior and start to live in that so God can bless and answer that prayer. Not that he needs us to do anything to answer the prayer, but we need to know that he is actively involved. And we need to position ourselves. 
if I want to be filled with his Holy Spirit, if I want to have his thoughts, then I need to watch my intake. If it's filled with the world's themes and music and, and such, not that it's all bad, but there is stuff that is bad. There is stuff that does want to take me away from sinner and pull me to the side. And if that's my input to pray, God, give me purity of thought, it's going to be a conflict. Not only do we pray, but we also position ourselves in our prayers. And so I'm going to, as, as my papa said, keep my eyes on Jesus because one degree to the left will be sane and one degree to the right will be flesh. And if I keep on Jesus, I'm going to make it okay. But the minute I begin to watch over here, I want to be holy, but the flesh is weak. And I begin to do the things of where I'm putting my attention. So Jesus says, watch and pray. Be careful that you don't fall into temptation. We do that by living our lives in the same vein that we're praying out of our lives. Daniel. What we know about Daniel in the book of Daniel is that his life was devoted to prayer. But in that, he was in bondage, he was a, a prisoner, but he was, had such integrity and character that they made him an official in the land. But out of that position of prayer, he wouldn't in his daily duties or whatever he was asked of, he wouldn't violate what he knew God wanted for him. He would not behave the way that they wanted him to behave. He made a confession that God was God, the true God, and he lived his life in such a way that proclaimed that. Barak in Judges chapter 4, He's praying for a victory that's going on in the battle before, and he's on the hill, and he's looking at the, and he's praying, God, give us victory. But when he goes down into the battle, as soon as he stepped into the battle, the victory was theirs. Or David in 1 Chronicles 22, Samuel's building the temple now, or Solomon, I mean, is building the temple now. And David speaks to the workers and he says, put your mind on the things of God, now arise and go build. You see a progression? In our minds, we center on who God is and what he's doing and what he's about and what he wants. And then we live in that pathway. 1 John 5 says, this is the confidence that when I've come and I've learned to pray, Father, who art in heaven, holy, 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 hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, your will be done. And when I begin to pray into that, then my prayers are, take on great confidence because I'm praying the will of God for my life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. There's not a surprise. I'm praying as Jesus instructed us to pray. I'm praying into the will of the Father for my life. What I get back is the activity of the Father's will. And I grow. David Mueller said this, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance, but rather laying hold of God's willingness. God wants 
to answer your prayers. God wants to use you. God wants to do all the good things that he's spoken into your life and are made possible because of the cross. But it's up to us often to look and to position ourselves in prayer in such a manner that we receive. And so the Lord's Prayer is not this nice little poem. And he doesn't say to recite it. He says, learn to pray like this. Learn what this is about so that when you pray, you're acknowledging that the God of heaven, the God who deserves worship, the God of splendor, the God of majesty, is the God that you're addressing. And in that context... Ask that his will be accomplished, and it will be. Ask that you're safe, and you will be. Ask that you have provision, and you will have. Here's the caution. Don't let yourself be found outside the throne room when you pray, because the invitation is to go in. The invitation is to come. And the best imagery I can find is that of a little child who somehow gets in the doors and makes a beeline for the throne. And before anybody can stop her, she jumps on God's lap and he says, it's okay, she's mine. And it's in that tension of absolute confidence that if I can get to the lap of the Father, I'm safe. In spite of all the commotion and everybody else telling me I can't or can do, that God invites us in. But many times because we come with our agenda, we come without acknowledging his lordship, we come without acknowledging who God is, we find that our prayers feel empty. I've heard people too many times say, I've stopped praying because it doesn't work. My response is always just a very candid, then you're doing it wrong. Because <laughs> prayer does work. But it works in the way that God prescribed through Jesus in his word. It's first with his lordship. It's first in an attitude of worship. Now, it doesn't mean we don't get to bring our petitions. In the next chapter, Jesus is saying, bring your petitions, be persistent, but do it in this context. Understand, I love you. Understand, I want what's best for you. But the best thing that you can possibly do is worship me. The best thing you can possibly do is adore me. Come on, dads. Kids say I love you. A 20 slips out of your pocket. Because we love to hear that. Nah, she's got you wrapped around her finger. Yeah, but listen to her. She's got the truth. The father's a good father. He loves to help his children. But at times, the answer might be a no. Well, that's because whatever you're asking for isn't good for you. 
Anybody here ever been told no? Only to find out later it was the right answer? Some suggestions for personal prayer. Engage it as you would a conversation in a relationship where you can actually see the person across the room. Journaling is a great way. Sometimes I get busy and I forget. Anybody with me on that one? You know, and so my best seasons are when I get up in the morning and I read some scripture and I talk with the Father and I spend some time in worship. And I look at the scripture and I just begin to write some things about what I see. What are some observations? And then I'll ask a couple of questions of that scripture. What does it mean? How would that look like during my day? And then I ask a very simple prayer. Father, would you help me understand this as I go to, throughout my day today? And I close the journal and close my Bible and I go to work, go to play, whatever it is I've got on the agenda that day. And that night, come back to it. And just sit down and let your mind settle down, which is a difficult thing for me to do, but I, I try to do it. And, okay, God, what did I see today about what we talked about this morning? And it's amazing how many times something happened in my day that had something to do with that verse. And I write it out. And I can go back and I can look in my journals and see how God answered prayer. See how I grew up in my praying. And to see sometimes the things I was asking for are things I'm sure glad didn't happen. Use scripture in your prayers, as I did with Psalms 145. What better way to pray God's will than pray truth to him? He wrote it. He believes it. It's true. So I can use it to educate myself, to shape my prayers to bolster up my soul. David, when he's being threatened and chased and locked in caves because the enemies are outside, says, soul, praise God. Well, why is he talking to himself? Because he didn't feel like praising God, but he knew it was the right thing to do. And as he began to do it, victory came. We need to talk to ourselves in a manner that Jesus instructed. So I want to encourage you to pray in such a way that is obedient to how Jesus said to pray. It doesn't take any longer to do it right than to change something's wrong and try to fix it later. And when you take the time to worship, when you take the time to acknowledge God for who he is, it makes receiving his will not only a priority, but easy. One of the issues I found in my life and in many Christians' lives is pretty soon the secondary things become what we worship. We worship the worship instead of worship God. We get caught in the music. We get caught in whatever. The receiving becomes what we worship instead of the giver. We begin to dictate to God. And we feel power instead of recognizing that he owns the power. And pretty soon the number one of God is number two. 
and the recipient of that Christian life is now number two, one instead of number two. And Jesus in this prayer walks us in a very simple way, demonstrating how to keep God first and us in our rightful place. But that rightful place is an amazing place to be because it's safe, it's holy, and it's in line with what my father has. So a couple things as we wrap reverently, yet with childlike anticipation, enter into God's presence. Take time to enter the throne room. Be aware that he's at work in greater things than you can ever ask or think. We're going to sing that in just a minute. What God is doing may not be on your radar, but you're on his radar. And I give myself, by telling him he has permission, I give myself the ability to rest into it. Yes, God, I desire your will be done, not mine. Because what I can say to you is pale in what you can orchestrate. Third, be willing to come alongside what you sense he is doing. Now, there's a safeguard there, and that's that it should always line up with Scripture. God will never violate himself, and Scripture is his word. And so what you're sensing God is doing, you should be able to, to validate in Scripture. Fourth, bring to him the things that you know are for you from him. I know he wants good character out of me. I know he wants me to be loving. I know he wants me to be kind. I know he wants me to be an ambassador for the kingdom. I know those things. So those are the things I'm going to engage in him with. He knows I want to flee from temptation. So I'm going to ask him for that, and then I'm going to live accordingly so I'm not tempted. But when life crumbles in, he's going to protect me because he's a good father. And lastly, be thankful. Whether or not you get the answer that you want at the moment doesn't determine who he is. If he answers your prayer, he's wonderful. But if he doesn't answer your prayer, he is still wonderful because he's a good father. If you find yourself upset with him because he didn't answer your prayer, then maybe take pause and ask, okay, why didn't he answer it this way? And why is he answering it this way? What am I missing? How do I need to look at this a little bit different? What is God's perspective in this issue? Maybe I need to ask somebody else. This is what I think was happening, but it seems like this is happening. What do you see? And, and use each other in the body of Christ. Talk to each other about what you're praying about. And encourage one another. I was hoping to have a little bit of time to talk about ministry prayer, but Nick's going to pick that up next week, talk about ministry prayer and congregational prayer. So today... We're going to head for close. Team's going to come up, and we're going to sing that song that Vince and the team wrote. But I want to encourage you to look at your prayer life this week. Maybe you've been examining it this morning. 
How are you doing? What's happening? And to go back at the beginning of the Lord's Prayer and to look at it this week, not as a piece of literature, but as a line-by-line understanding of how Jesus said to come to him, how we address the Father, how we come into his presence, how do we make statements of worship, how do we desire his will over us. And we come to that place where then it's easy to say, Father, just give me what you want me to have because I'm not on the throne, you are. Father, help my behavior and my language today to be in line with what your will is. And it's so easy to walk it out well because I'm looking at him. It's when I give time to the distractions that I begin to falter and I lose my place. Pray. But pray, as Jesus said, pray like this, and you'll see a dramatic difference in your prayer life if you're not doing that already. I know some of you are. But if you're like me, you need reminded to go back to the basics, to make sure the socks aren't wrinkled and the shoes are tied so you don't get blisters, so you can play, so you can win. It's called a victorious Christian life. And it can be, and it should be. And the invitation is there to let it be. But we do so as the Father directed in Scripture and Jesus admonished. Amen? Let's stand.